We pray that as we come to your word today, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Grant us wisdom to discern your word. Help us to understand the things that are difficult to understand. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. But we pray, Lord, that your word would accomplish your work in us in making us more and more like Christ. Of course, we pray this specifically also for our children. We pray that your word would fall on fertile soil, that seeds would be planted, and that these seeds will produce saving faith in your time. Of course, we pray this for children both inside and outside of the womb, Father. We remember that they're a gift from you, and we pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. Use this time now to glorify Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 9. We're going to be finishing up our study of John chapter 9 today, looking at verses 39 to 41. One of the main themes of not only this chapter, but the previous chapter, if you remember, was the theme of light. I mean, we're talking about a man who was healed of his blindness. He, was, he had lived his entire life in the darkness. And Jesus comes to him. Jesus seeks him out and allows him to see the light. He gives him the means by which he can see light. And of course, this is a picture of salvation. But that's what light is throughout John's gospel. It's a picture of, it's an illustration of salvation, of, of truth. Light serves two purposes. The first is probably the most obvious, it gives life. Without light, there is no possibility of life. We need light in order to exist. In fact, it's an amazing thing to consider that without sunlight, we would even have problems in our bones. Uh, not only can it cause bone problems for us, but it can create even issues in the feet. It can cause uh, certain forms of cancer. Uh, it can cause a type of depression that is, uh, you know, biological in nature. So, you know, it even affects the way we think. It even affects the way that we, that we perceive things in our, in our minds, the way we think about things. Lack of sunlight actually causes uh, cognitive disorders. It can also cause weight gain. Uh, it can cause all kinds of problems if you are not exposed to light. We need light in order to live. So do plants, and so do animals, by the way, and we need them in order for us to live also. All these things need the light of the sun in order to have life. That's the primary function of light. But light also serves a second purpose, in that it scatters it scatters. Specifically, you might realize that it scatters pests and bugs that have an aversion to the light of the sun. I mean, if you were to go out into our parking lot after service today and tip back one of those beams of wood that kind of separates the, the lawn from the parking lot, what you'll see is that there are all kinds of critters and creatures under there. But as soon as you flip that board over, what do you think they're going to be doing? 
they're going to be trying to run for cover because they do not like sunlight. That's why they're under those beams. Almost instantly, from the moment that they're exposed to the sun, they flee from it. That's the second purpose of light, is to scatter. Jesus said back in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whosoever follows me will not dwell in darkness, but will have the light of life. And everything that we've read since then, everything that we've read between that statement and the passage that we find ourselves in today has flowed from that specific claim that Jesus made. John has devoted an enormous amount of time, a very significant amount of time and energy to showing us both the truth of that claim and the effect that that claim has on people. In the case of the Pharisees, they were kind of the the main antagonists of chapter 8. In the case of the Pharisees, we've seen Jesus just going after them relentlessly. He's engaged them with ferocity. And they're illustrated actually very accurately by the bugs and creatures and critters that immediately seek out darkness when they're exposed to the light of the sun. But from the beginning of John's testimony, going back to chapter 1, John told us the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. He's told us that the world was made through him. Speaking of Jesus, the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And he's told us that he, Jesus, came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. That's exactly what we've been seeing. That's exactly what we've been seeing play out in the past two chapters. And yet, in the midst of this conflict that Jesus has had with the Pharisees, we've also seen that Jesus, as the light of the world that shines in the darkness, has shined his light on this man who was born blind. And by doing that, by doing so, he gave the man not only his physical sight, but more importantly, he gave him spiritual life, the light of life, as Jesus claimed back in the previous chapter, chapter 8, verse 12. Everything that we've seen since that statement has been an illustration of that statement. See, just as the light of the sun is good, and just as it's, it's necessary for, for life to exist, it's also bad and means certain death for creatures like earthworms. And likewise, the gospel is very good news. I mean, that's what the, the word gospel literally means. It means good news. But it's also very bad news. It's good news to those who believe and are saved by it. But it's terrible news for those who will not believe. It's grace and it's spiritual life for those who believe, but it is judgment and wrath and spiritual death for those who do not believe. Now in the previous chapter, we saw Jesus seek out the the formerly blind man after the man had been cast out of the temple. And he asked a question which shined even more light on the man. He asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Of course, that's a, that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Read Daniel chapter 7. The, the term son of man is huge. It's Jesus claiming to have unparalleled authority. And Jesus says, do you believe in the son of man? That's what he says to the formerly blind man. It was a question which was designed to shine light. It was a question which was designed to help this formerly blind man grow as light causes trees and plants and and life to grow. 
And that question did exactly what Jesus intended for it to do, didn't it? We saw that when the man learned that Jesus himself was the Son of Man, what did he do? He believed Jesus and he worshipped him. But the passage that we come to today shows us the second effect that light has. It reveals and scatters those who hate the light, those who do not believe. So the passage we find ourselves in today warns us of the danger of knowledge. It reminds us that we are stewards, not just of our, of our you know, money and cars and houses. You know, we are stewards of those things, but we are stewards of everything that God has given us, which includes knowledge, specifically spiritual knowledge. And it reminds us that the most dangerous and deadly thing a person can do with spiritual knowledge is to reject it. Maybe they twist it. Maybe they, they reject it by twisting it, by changing it, by turning it, not to act appropriately or accordingly in light of it. J.C. Ryle says this in his commentary. He says, quote, Knowledge undoubtedly is a very great blessing. And he goes on to note, But when knowledge only sticks in a man's head and has no influence over his heart and life, it becomes a most perilous possession. And when, in addition to this, its possessor is self-conceited and self-satisfied and imagines he knows everything, the result is one of the worst states of soul which man can fall. End quote. So the question that I urge you to consider today as we study verses 39 to 41 of chapter 9, friends, is this. This is the question I urge you to consider, and that's this. What are you doing with the spiritual knowledge that you have. Specifically, what are you doing? How are you stewarding the knowledge that you've been given of Christ? What effect does the light of the world shining on you have on you? The point of the passage before us is that God will judge each of us in accordance with the light that we've been given. And thus we must ensure that it has produced spiritual life in us rather than revealing a state of spiritual death. So immediately after receiving the worship of the formerly blind man, this is the passage that we come to. We'll look at the whole passage together and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Verses 39 to 41, this is what we see. John writes, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. This is an incredible passage. This is a strict and dire warning that Jesus issues not only to the Pharisees, but to anyone who reads this text. John has shared this passage with us for the explicit purpose of warning you and warning me and warning anyone who reads this against being like the Pharisees. Because if we reject the light that the Pharisees rejected, we must understand that we will also face the same fate that they would if they persisted in unbelief. Not only spiritual blindness in the here and now, 
but an eternity under the unbearable weight of God's holy and just wrath. What's interesting to see here is that Jesus has not only sought out this formerly blind man to, to strengthen him and to, to enlighten him and to grow him in his knowledge and his understanding of Jesus, but all of this seems to have taken place with the Pharisees present. The Pharisees have been there. They've witnessed this whole thing take place. This man just worshipped Jesus, and he did it right in front of the Pharisees. By the way, this is one of those places that you can turn to when somebody gives you the objection that Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, he did claim to be God, actually. One of the ways in which Jesus made that claim very explicit was by receiving worship. We see in Scripture that even angels refuse to receive worship, right? Angels won't allow people to worship them. When John tried to worship the angel in heaven, he was rebuked, right? Angels don't want to be worshipped. Prophets refuse to be worshipped. The apostles didn't even want to be worshipped. Why not? Because every one of them knew that only God is worthy of being worshipped. And to worship anything other than God is a heinous, terrible sin. And Jesus knew that too. See, if, if he knew that it was sinful to receive worship, and yet he received worship, you either have to acknowledge that Jesus was claiming to be God incarnate by receiving this worship, or you have to believe that Jesus was not a good teacher, that in fact he was a very wicked and immoral man. Because that's the only kind of person, that's the only kind of man who would receive worship unless he is actually God in the flesh. Do you see the way that Jesus divides simply by nature of the fact that he received worship? Speaking of Jesus dividing, we, we must not think that Jesus is contradicting himself here when he says, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. You'll remember that he told Nicodemus back in chapter 3, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's from John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now, it's true that Jesus came to be a Savior and not a judge. And yet, by virtue of the fact that he is a Savior, he also causes division among men. He breaks, he, he divides them into two groups, right? By nature of the fact that he's a Savior. Those who are saved and those who aren't. Those who receive spiritual life from the light of the world and those whose state of spiritual death is made evident when the light of the world shines upon them. The first group, those who have been saved, those who have received eternal life from the light of the world, they could not be more greatly blessed. And the latter group, those who hate the light, and scatter when it shines upon them. They could not possibly be in greater danger. The question is, friends, which of these two categories are you in? 
Which of these two categories do you find yourself? Are you in the first group or the second? Are you, are you counted among those who have received the light and believed? Or are you counted among those who have had the light of Christ shine upon you and you hate the light and you've refused to believe? Because make no mistake about it, it's one or the other. It's one or the other. You, you've received light today simply by virtue of the fact that you're here, that you were singing with us, that you were in the presence of the saints as we prayed, as we praised, and now as we come to God's word. You have received light about Jesus. The question is, what are you going to do with that light? What's your response to it? What effect does it have on you? What effect does it have on your heart? What effect does it have on your mind? What effect does it have on your desires? What effect does it have on your ambitions in life? Your career choices? Or How about this one? I think we're not supposed to say this, but how about your political choices? It should affect everything for the glory of Christ. See, we have to understand that the nature of truth is that truth necessarily divides, right? It divides from error. That's why doctrine is so important. If we don't know doctrine, we don't know truth. And what happens when you don't know truth? Error just comes in uncontested. Because if you don't know what's true, you don't know what's false. If you don't know what's right, you don't know what's wrong. You know, I've had people tell me, and I've read books that say, you know, you, you need to stop teaching doctrine when you preach. Just focus on preaching the gospel. And I, when I come across that, I'm like, what does that even mean? That is just complete nonsense. First of all, the gospel is filled with doctrinal truth, right? It, it starts with the fact that you are a sinner. That's doctrine. It starts with the fact that you have offended a holy God. That's doctrine, And it goes to the fact that God has provided a Savior. That's doctrine. You can't preach the gospel without teaching doctrine. Secondly, the idea that we should focus on preaching the gospel instead of doctrine is itself a doctrine. But but in this case, it's a false doctrine. It's clearly an error because it's self-defeating. Light divides. Truth divides. Jesus divides. Why else do you think he said in Luke? He said, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So how does Jesus do that? How does Jesus set a man against his father or a daughter against her mother? We don't have to worry too much about how a daughter-in-law gets set against her mother-in-law, right? That's almost natural. Just kidding. In either case, it's because one receives spiritual life. One falls into the first category of people while the other remains dead in their sins. The second group of people. One loves the light and grows from the light And the other, when the light is shined on them, it exposes that they hate the light and that they dwell in spiritual death. See, the preaching of the gospel converts, but it also convicts. It renders justification, but it also renders judgment. All for the same reason that the same sun that melts wax will harden clay. That's why I urge people, 
when I share the gospel, don't put off believing in Jesus for another time down the road, for a later day, because it's not going to be easier someday. In the moment, it seems like, well, I've got so many other things going on, I'm just not ready to do it, I'll, I'll just wait. But it's not going to get easier down the road. In fact, it gets more difficult. If God's word, if God's gospel does not soften your heart, it has the opposite effect. It hardens it. And that's why the author of Hebrews urged his readers, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. By receiving life in Christ, those who could not see can see. And those who at least thought that they could see are revealed to be blind. This verse, verse 39, shows us that Jesus didn't just pick this man randomly. He, he, he intentionally found a blind man. And that receiving his sight is an illustration of salvation. Now there are some people out there, there are some commentaries out there who argue that Jesus uh, did the miracle simply to convince this formerly blind man to believe. That is not the case at all. Apart from God's grace, apart from Jesus not only opening this man's physical eyes, but also opening his spiritual eyes, the eyes of his heart, most importantly, the man never would have believed. Verse 40 proves for us that this all took place in front of the Pharisees. The light is shining on them as Jesus receives worship and as Jesus speaks these words of judgment. They heard Jesus explain that he is the Son of Man. They knew the significance of that. They saw the formerly blind man profess faith in Jesus. They saw him worship Jesus. Now you might be asking, why were they there? The answer is we don't know. We're not told. We can assume that this is the same setting, uh, that the, the blind man, uh, you know, he's just been cast out of this, uh, the, the temple. Uh, it's possible that Jesus met him at the door as he was leaving. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Whatever the case may be, the Pharisees heard and saw all of this. And it's all light. And what did they do when the light was shined on them? They hated it. They respond sarcastically, we're not blind too, are we? Don't miss the fact that they're, they're mocking Jesus here. Right in front of him. Right in front of this formerly blind man. And this demonstrates how blind they are, doesn't it? They're too blind to even realize how blind they are. See, see the way they demonstrate their spiritual blindness is by denying their spiritual blindness. They're prideful. They're not humble at all. The, the, the formerly blind man, he, he was humble. He didn't know who the Son of Man was, so he asked Jesus, tell me who it is. Jesus says, it's me. So he worshiped Jesus, but he started humbly. The Pharisees do not start humbly. They start pridefully. They're too prideful to admit that they cannot see. They have the Scriptures, but they don't have understanding of the Scriptures. They have every reason to believe in Jesus after Jesus just healed this man of blindness, which nobody, as the blind man pointed out earlier in the text, nobody has ever had happen to them throughout the history of the world. And yet, while they have every reason, the Pharisees have every reason to believe Jesus in light of this miracle, they still see no need to join this formerly blind man in believing in Jesus and worshiping him. See, the way 
To remain spiritually blind is to refuse to confess that you can't see. The way to remain lost is to refuse to even admit that you're lost. And so you don't ask for help. And, and, and don't we do that kind of thing all the time? I mean, I think men are kind of famous for, for being too prideful to stop and ask for directions when they're lost. But I also think that if we're being honest, women are probably at least somewhat equally inclined to do the same thing. But either way, take that picture of the person who refuses to stop and ask for directions, and you have a picture of somebody who is spiritually lost and refuses to admit to themselves and to others that they need a Savior. They're lost, but they're too prideful to admit it. See, the Pharisees, as far as the Pharisees are concerned, they, they, they have no need for Christ. They knew the law, and, and they thought they upheld the law. They, they thought they lived perfectly good, perfectly moral, perfectly upstanding lives, but that was all in accordance with their standards, not with God's standards. And so they figure, and they figure wrongly, I should add, they figure that they must be able to live up to God's standards since they can live up to their own standards. The only God whose standards they lived up to was a God of their own making, they didn't know the God of the Scriptures. They didn't know the God of Abraham. They didn't know the God of Moses. They did not know Jehovah. If they did, they would have known that they fell far, far short of His perfect, righteous, holy standard. And so do I, by the way. And so do you. But do you realize that? That's the question. Do you realize how far you fall short of God's holy and perfect standard? Do you see that? Do you realize that no matter how good others might think you are, do you realize that no matter how good you might consider yourself to be when you compare yourself to other people, that you don't measure up to God's standard? The question is not, how do you compare to other people around you? The question is, how do you compare to Jesus? And the answer is, you're not even in the same universe. You're so far off the charts of meeting God's standards. If you do realize that, if you do realize how far, fall you, how far you fall short of God's standard, then you also realize that you have a need you have a need for a Savior. You have a need for somebody to live up to God's perfect, righteous, holy standard in your place, on your behalf. See, those who come to Jesus in true faith and repentance recognize a need that they have that the Pharisees didn't realize they had. Those who come to Jesus realize that they're blind. They realize they can't see. They realize that they are lost in darkness. By God's grace, God shines a light and they come to it. In other words, they see how far short they fall of God's holy standard. And by God's grace, they see that Jesus and only Jesus met that standard, upheld that standard, and that he credits his perfect righteousness through faith alone to all who believe in him. And so they come to him knowing 
that without him, knowing that without the miracle of saving grace, they are hopeless and remain lost in the darkness. The Pharisees had no sense of need when it came to Christ. Do you? Let me ask you this. How much are you trusting in Christ for your salvation versus yourself? Is it kind of a 50-50 thing? Like you're doing your best and, well, Jesus will just fill in the rest? That's Mormonism, by the way. Is it 50-50? How about 80-20? I mean, that, that's trusting in Jesus more, but trusting in yourself a little bit, right? What about 90-10? Let me say this. If you're trusting in yourself even 1%, even one one-hundredth of 1%, that is too much. And so I urge you today, I urge you right now to see your need and to see that while you are entirely, not just mostly, you are entirely unable to help yourself, Jesus, and only Jesus, is entirely able and entirely willing to help you. I have to warn you, friends, that Jesus will leave a person in their spiritual blindness if they stubbornly and rebelliously refuse to acknowledge the fact that they cannot see or understand spiritual truth apart from him. Don't ever let pride hold you back from seeing your need for Christ. The Pharisees also think that the gospel is foolishness. I mean, how many times have I noted during our study of John that the Pharisees are an illustration of the world. They're not an illustration of Christians who desire to simply uh, live a life that's pleasing to God by aligning their lives with his word. I mean, who thinks that the gospel is foolishness? The perishing do. The world does. Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the Pharisees thought that this idea that they couldn't see was laughable. It was worthy of being mocked. It was, it was foolishness to them. And if that's the case, if they reject the diagnosis of the disease, how much more foolish will they consider the solution for the disease, which is the cross? But for those who come to Jesus, they receive, they understand, they trust the diagnosis of the disease. They're given eyes to see the accuracy of the diagnosis with startling clarity. They realize they've fallen far short of God's holy standard. God's word reveals it to them. And thus when they're presented with the solution, when they're presented with Christ crucified in the place of guilty sinners, they receive it as the cure. They receive it as the power and the wisdom of God unto salvation. They see that Jesus was more than just a, a good man. He was more than just a very moral teacher or a good moral example. They see that his teachings are true. They see that he has claimed to be God. They might not have a whole lot of theological understanding, but that will come in due time as God reveals it to them. What they understand in the moment, however, is that what God's word reveals about the state of their souls 
is true. And it's enough to convince them to run to the cross, to run to Christ for grace. See, friends, the disease is this. You've sinned against a holy, righteous, just God who must punish every sin. You've sinned against Him actually in every way imaginable, even in ways you would probably deny. But the disease has a cure. And that cure is that God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, stepped down from eternity and He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life, never sinning even once, never straying from the will of the Father. He alone, Jesus alone, was perfectly righteous. And He offers that righteousness, God's own righteousness, to all who will repent and believe in Him. That righteousness, Christ's righteousness, God's own righteousness, is the only righteousness that is sufficient for salvation. It's the only righteousness that God will accept. Now tell me, when you hear that, does that strike you as foolishness? Or does that strike you as the power and the wisdom of God unto salvation. The Pharisees denied both the disease, that is, they denied that they had fallen short of God's holy standard, and they denied the remedy, the gospel. And thus they would not submit to Christ in humble obedience. And again, this is, this is contrasted with those who come to Christ. They come to Him because they don't dispute either the disease, the fact that they've sinned and fallen short of God's standard, nor do they dispute their need for the remedy of repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. But while Jesus Christ is a Savior, He's also more than a Savior. And we need to realize that. He's also Lord. He's Lord. And all who truly come to Christ must submit to Christ as Lord in humble obedience. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Notice, by the way, when he said that, he didn't say, you should keep my commandments. He didn't even say, if you love me, you might keep my commandments. No, he doesn't present that as being optional at all, does he? Because it's not. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's Matthew 16, 24. And the key word there is must. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. And he must... Follow me. Let me ask you this. Does that sound burdensome to you? I hope it doesn't. Because for the Christian, obedience to Christ, submitting to Him as Lord, isn't a burden. Submission to Christ is joyful. See, the world looks at that and they say, oh, you're going to prevent me from doing all the things I love to do. But the Christian looks at it and says, I shouldn't love these things. Help me to not love these things. That's why the psalmist says things in Psalm 119 like, oh, how I love your law. 
It's my meditation all the day. Or I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Or those who love your law have great peace. That's why the psalmist pleads with God eight times throughout that psalm, throughout Psalm 119, teach me your statutes. Do you find joy in humbly submitting to Christ? Do you find peace in humbly yielding your life unto him? Or does that seem like a heavy, burdensome, unnecessary thing? It did to the Pharisees. That's why they basically nuanced his law to death according to their own philosophies, according to their own understandings and preferences and ideas. But to those who have been granted life in Christ, they learn that when it comes to following God's law, it isn't their own power that enables them or convicts them to walk in obedience. No, it's the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and leading us and empowering us, shining light on the text of Scripture to heed it, to follow it, to obey it. And I pray, friends, I pray that you would know that power. And in doing so, that you would know the joy, the joy of submitting to Christ. See, the beautiful and the freeing thing here is that none of these qualities we see in those who come to Christ can be attributed directly to the individual. If the Holy Spirit was not dwelling within you, none of us would even care. All these things are seen and they're understood and they're believed because of God's grace. Just as Christ took the initiative in seeking out this blind man, not, not just once, but, but twice in this chapter, so too it's by him seeking us that we're found. Jesus once summarized his mission by saying this, Luke 19.10. He said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus is the seeker. He didn't just come to make it possible for the lost to be found. He came to actually find. He came to actually save. Did he fail to save some? The Arminian would have to answer that yes, he did fail to save some. But the question is then, can God fail? Is it possible that Christ came to seek and save the lost and yet he didn't completely do that? Is it possible that Jesus didn't accomplish his mission? And the answer is no, it's not. He didn't make anyone's salvation only potential. He actually accomplished it. He literally took the sins of every person throughout history who would believe in him upon himself. He took their place in receiving the full outpouring of his own wrath against their sin so that they might be forgiven, redeemed, and reconciled unto himself. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news of salvation unto all who believe. Is it good news to your ears? Or is it bad news? 
Is it foolishness? If it sounds like bad news to you, let me just say this to you. If you have never truly believed in Jesus, count it as grace, count it as amazing, beautiful grace that you are here today. It's not too late for you to believe in Jesus and to receive sight from him right now. What do you think the Pharisees were expecting Jesus to say, by the way, when they mocked him? When they said, we're not blind too, are we? What do you think they were expecting Jesus to say? Yes? Uh, I don't know. Uh, yes, you are. I, I don't know. I don't know what they were bracing themselves for. But he would have been right to say yes. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives them something to chew on. He's so good at that, isn't he? He doesn't just answer a question directly. Instead, he puts the ball back in their court. He's like, chew on this and you'll get your answer right? He says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Now this is elaborated a little bit more fully later on. In John 15, verses 22 to 24, Jesus says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here is basically to say, if you claim ignorance of the truth, that would be humble of you, and that, that would be one thing, it would be maybe understandable somewhat, maybe somewhat excusable, but you're not claiming that. And you're not ignorant of the truth. You've seen light. You know the truth. But you have suppressed the truth in your own unrighteousness. But by your own words, you claim that you're not ignorant. You claim that you are not in the darkness. You claim that you don't hate the light. All the while, you refuse to come to me as the light of life, and you continue to reject me. And so your self-delusion is what prevents you from coming to me and finding salvation, and thus, you remain under judgment. The point that Jesus is making here is that to whom much is given, much is required. With knowledge of the truth comes responsibility to act in a way that is appropriate in light of that truth. And God will judge each of us in accordance with the light that we have been given. For the natural man, it's enough for them to just Dwell in the outer courts of Scripture, as George Whitfield likened it to. To see God's Word and to treat God's Word the same way they would treat any other book, exactly like the Pharisees did. But not so with God's people. With God's people, it's not enough to just dwell in the outer courts. They must come in. They must receive God's Word. And God's Word dwells in their minds and they meditate on it day and night. See, to reject the light, to reject the truth, to reject the knowledge that God graciously gives leads only to a further hardening of the heart and the mind. And that leads all the more to judgment. But you need to understand Romans 8.1 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So which type of person are you? The person who's not under condemnation because you're in Christ through faith, you've believed, or you're content just knowing a few truths about Jesus but not yielding your life to him. If that's you, if you're somebody who has rejected and fled from the light of Christ, you must know that the current hardening of your heart is not the end of your problems. It's only the beginning. The scriptures tell us that Christ's greatest acts of judgment will come in the future. Revelation 19.15 tells us that the same Jesus who invites you to deny yourself take up your cross and follow him. In the end, he will, quote, strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In other words, he will offer a final judgment against those who have rejected him. Paul refers to that day of judgment in his sermon on, Acts, uh, on, on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He acknowledges that the people he was preaching to had not known God, but had had worshipped God in ignorance, and that God had dealt just very patiently with them. But then he says this in verses 30 and 31. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus will judge the nations one day. For those who are not in Christ, they will wish that they hadn't even been born. What Paul is saying there, what he's saying to those people is the same thing he's saying to you. It's the same thing that I'm saying to you. And that is that if you have not repented and believed in Christ, there is still hope. Because you've got the chance today, right now, to do as God has instructed. And to thereby be spared from God's just and final judgment. Because one day, Jesus, the great divider of men, will forever remove those who have rejected him from the presence of his grace. And they will eternally dwell under his holy and just wrath. Don't take this lightly. Don't take this flippantly. Don't take it casually. Jesus is either very, very good news to you or he is very, very bad news for you. And I don't say this to scare you. I don't say this to startle you. I only say this to alert you to the urgency of the matter. You have received light. Even today, you've received light from God's word. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Will you come to Christ and receive the light of life from him? None of us is worthy of that. And yet he offers it freely. What will you do with that knowledge? Will you be saved by it? Or will you be judged by it? What effect does the light of the world shining on you 
have on you. I urge you today, friends, to respond to this knowledge of Christ the same way that this formerly blind man did. By fleeing, not from Christ, but by fleeing from the darkness, by believing in Christ and fixing the gaze of your hearts entirely upon Jesus. Let's pray. Our most precious and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it warns us. We thank you for the way that it forces us to examine our hearts. We thank you for the light that it shines on us. And we thank you for the awareness it has given us of whether we hate it or whether we love it, whether it reveals death or whether it reveals life. And we pray that we might discern your light correctly. Teach us, O Lord, to be your light, to reflect your light in this dark world. We pray for opportunities to share the gospel and to thereby witness firsthand the miracle of friends and family members being converted, believing in Christ, showing signs of life instead of death. We pray, Lord, that you would shine your light brightly in this world in our nation, in our state, in our city, that Christ might be lifted up and glorified as the light of the world. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.